0: Our first reading is taken from Genesis, chapter 16, and I'm starting at the first verse. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, "'You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. "'I put my servant in your arms.' And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah... Where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Then we're going to read from Galatians chapter 4 starting at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the the present city of Jerusalem, because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. This is God's word.
1: Great, we're in Genesis. I've been for a few weeks, we're still in Genesis. Let's pray as we begin. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your grace. Thank you, as we've just sung, everyone who is a believer here this evening is a child of your grace. You have given us salvation through your Son. We can't achieve it. We have to receive it. And we thank you that you've graciously given your Son and Father, we need more grace. We need grace to live the Christian life day by day. So please, now, would your spirit come and uh, bring these words to us fresh. Give us grace to live for you, to love you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I, um, I don't know if you came across it, one of those incidental stories in the paper uh, this week. Uh, uh, two truck drivers, uh, two, two guys are driving a lorry in China, and uh, they came to a tunnel, short tunnel, through a, a small mountain. And uh, obviously in Chinese, the sign said, uh, warning, uh, maximum height, 11 foot 0 inches. If your vehicle is any higher than this, you need to take this exit and go around the mountain. Well, apparently the truck was 12 foot. Uh, tall and so they pulled in and uh, looked at this sign and had a conversation with one another what do we do it'll add another 90 minutes if we go round until apparently one of them looked in both directions said well there's no police let's go for it and they did and they got stuck as you'd imagine in the tunnel so their 90 minutes became a day that they had to wait uh, with their truck until they, they were pulled out that's not so bright You could have done the maths, 11 foot, 12 foot, you do the maths, that doesn't quite work. Sometimes uh, the shortcut is attractive, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the man wants to get home in a hurry, and uh, he nips through that light, he's um, an amber gambler, it's red, and uh, he nips through the lights because he's in a hurry to get home, and that'll get him home faster, but the policeman sees, pulls him over, and he's there for half an hour, and it takes a lot longer. Sometimes you think you've got a a shortcut, you can get there a little bit faster, and it doesn't quite work that way. Taking the illegal shortcut adds to your time, adds to the burden of your journey. What we have here tonight with Abraham and Sarah is a desire to take a shortcut, a shortcut to obedience. Rather than trusting in the promises of God, they think, well, let's get on with it. We can take a shortcut here. Rather than trusting in God's promise that he gave back in Genesis chapter 12 that he'd provide a son, Well, it's ten years later, we haven't got a son. Well, let's take a shortcut. Let's no longer trust God. Let's do it ourselves. Let's conjure up a plan. Abraham, why don't you sleep with another woman and let's produce a surrogate child? Unusual plan? But it's the same principle. Trying to take a, rather than trusting in the promises of God, taking a shortcut. And it ends badly, the point of this story. It doesn't go very well. Shortcutting faith. It'll end badly. Failing to trust the Lord and thinking you can do better your own way, it'll go badly in the end. Now, if you're joining us tonight, you may wonder what on earth you've come into with G- Genesis chapter 16. It's a slightly crazy story. I mean, the treatment of women is appalling. Uh, there's adultery. There's surrogacy. Uh, there's a dirty old man sleeping with a young servant girl. I mean, it's a slightly odd story uh, on face value and it is a slightly odd story. And in one says, welcome to the, the, the yo-yo world of Abraham's faith. So for those who have been here uh, over the last month, uh, we began in chapter 12. In chapter 12, God gives a, a command to Abraham, go and a promise. I'll be with you as you do so. And Abraham does well, and he has faith, and he goes, and it's good. But then, uh, second half of chapter 12, there's a famine. And rather than trust the promise of God, Abraham says, mm, I've got a plan. I'll do it my way. And he goes to Egypt, which he's not meant to do. So it goes badly for him. Do you remember when he goes to Egypt, it goes badly. The the Pharaoh gets sick, Abraham gets kicked out, and it doesn't go very well. So he he goes well, he goes badly. Chapter 13, he does very well again. There's an argument with him and uh, Lot, his nephew, have a bit of dispute, but Abraham trusts the promises of God. And so he lets Lot take whatever land he wants, and it goes well with him. and That's good. Chapter 14, it goes well. He's a hero in chapter 14, riding off into battle to save his uh, foolish nephew. It's good. Chapter 15, he loses confidence again. Uh, I'm not so sure about your promises. Chapter 16, chapter 16 is the worst point in Abraham's life. He really isn't very impressive here. So It's a yo-yo story of faith with Abraham. He's not impressive here, nor is Sarah, nor is Hagar. In fact, none of the characters seem very impressive uh, here. Well, none of the human characters. Because there is the Lord in this story. And it's one of those stories that makes it very, very obvious, if you've never realized this, that God is the hero of the Bible. And there are plenty of other characters in there. But God, supremely revealed in Jesus Christ, is the hero of the scriptures. And if you come to this book and thinking it's just Aesop's fables and you can learn something from the people, you'll really miss the point. Because people do virtuous actions and we're meant to emulate them, that's true. But they also often do terrible things. And we're meant to repudiate them. But the one who is consistently the hero of this book is Jesus Christ. He's God. So... Make sure you notice what he's doing. He supremely is the one to look to here. So we're going to break it down this way as we look at this story. We'll look at Sarah, we'll look at Abraham, and then we'll look at the Lord. So three things. Sarah's longings, they trumped her trust. Abraham, he listened rather than led. Then finally we'll look at the Lord, he cares for those cast out. Let's have a look at this story then. Firstly, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Ten years then since God gave the promise to Abraham, You're going to have a son. Ten years later, Sarah's now 75 and she's hacked off. No children. 75, you're probably thinking the menopause have kicked in by then. It's looking fairly unlikely that anything's going to happen. She's angry with God. So verse 2, the Lord has kept me from having children. It's his fault. So she decides to take matters into her own hands, she decides, I'm God. I will decide the right way of doing things. I will decide that God has failed, so I'd better be God and do things my way. I've got a plan. Because what you see here is her longings, they trump her trust. She longs so much for this child that God has to just go into the background. This is more important. Just you can just go away for now, can you? Fed up with you. Her longings trump her trust. Now once it is a biblical account but to be honest childlessness is a very real and very painful grief but dare i suggest it would if we would have been even worse back then because by the culture of the time forgive me if you're a woman that was your job to produce children and if you produced a multitude of children you were honoured, and if you produced no children, you were barren, which is a terrible words, isn't it? You have nothing. You're dead. You might as well be dead. Terrible way of thinking. But that, by the culture of the time, that's true. The children you could have will be everything for you as a woman. Now, once it's happily, that's not the case. The cultural pressure now is not on producing offspring, you know, a dozen offspring. Not many of you uh, have done that or will do that. Um, uh, And there's no great societal pressure. Because a woman is not made or broken by how many children she has in 21st century Western society. So in one sense, hurrah, we've moved on. Of course, it could be slightly different. You could just say the cultural pressure now is a woman is, well, what she looks like. That's much more of the modern pressure. Is that any better than you're a great woman if you produce children? Is you're a great woman if you look good and once you've lost your looks, you know, any better? Have we made progress? Well, you can decide that. It's just different culturally. But what you have then for Sarah is not just a personal, very natural longing personally to have a child, but an enormous societal pressure upon her. If you have no children, you are nothing. You're nothing. So you've got these two, a personal longing and the pressure of society. So, <laughs> be very slow to judge her, I'd say. Because her longings, they're very real. When you've got them personally and society is telling you you've got it wrong, or you're not really a proper human, then the temptation to try and do whatever you can is enormous. You've got to be realistic about that. So Sarah has a plan. Sarah has a plan, verse two. Uh, The Lord's bogged it up. He's failed. So go sleep with my maidservants. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Note, God was promised he'll build a family, but stuff that I, I will build a family, says Sarah. My plan, my way, it's going to work. Now, she's got a maidservant, Hagar. In the culture of the day, that isn't just um, the queen has a maidservant who puts on her hat. Uh, A maidservant at the time, she's a slave. She's owned so Hagar is Sarah's property. So again, by the culture of the time, this plan of surrogacy is acceptable. If you're the wife of the tribal leader, to have other children through your servants was okay. The neighbours wouldn't have <gasps> The neighbours wouldn't have been upset by that. Culturally, they just looked on. Okay, that's pretty normal. And if Hagar, as your property, has a child, the child is your property. That's what Sarah's talking about. I've got a plan, she says. See, so once it's by the cult standards of the time, it's acceptable, but believers don't live by the standards of the time. They're followers of the Lord. They should know well, Genesis chapter 2. God made man and woman for one another. One man, one woman become one flesh. That's the biblical pattern. They should know what is entirely right and appropriate. Because when you read Genesis 16, it doesn't explicitly condemn uh, polygamy, kind of what's taking place here, or, or surrogacy. But if you, if, when we come to this, we're meant to have read Genesis 2 first, and the text itself, by pointing out that it all goes terribly wrong, is saying to us, do you not see how ridiculous this is? They really shouldn't be doing that. So it's not explicit, but implicitly the criticism of their actions uh, is enormous. So Sarah's plan, it wouldn't have shocked the neighbors, but it would have appalled the Lord. But her longings trump her trust. Now some here would know that. So for, for us in our family, um, You know, over a period of seven years, infertility was an issue for for us as a couple. And the pressure to do whatever you can to have a child is enormous. It's enormous. And the culture around you puts pressure on as well. You start to get involved with doctors, and they say, oh, do whatever, just do whatever, just do whatever. Well, I'm a little uncomfortable with that as a Christian. Oh, stuff your Christian beliefs. You'll maximize your chances if you go this way. And the pressure to do this, to let your longings trump your trust, is very real and strong. I'm not sure we always got it right. I think we probably failed on one occasion. But the same principle works in different areas. So some will will have your parents, particularly your mothers, saying to you, why are you not married yet? Why are you not married? What are you doing holding out for a Christian man or woman? Do you not realize how you're limiting your chances? I need grandchildren. (laughs) You are depriving me of them. Go find anyone. I can find you someone. There is inter-something dating nowadays. Why don't you do that? And again, there's a longing. And there's pressure. And therefore, to allow your longings to trump your trust in the Lord is very real. It's a very real pressure. Some would feel that. Or whatever, different fields. You'll know where the pressure comes. Some feel it in business. desperate to make this thing work this job or this company you've set up work desperate there's a lot riding on it and therefore to allow your longings to trump your trust and do something which you're a little uncomfortable with it's a very real pressure very real so what we mustn't do is look upon Sarah and think what a silly woman why didn't she just trust God doesn't she know that in a few chapters time it all works out anyway Well, if you could read a few chapters ahead in your life, you might behave differently too. It's a very real temptation. Sarah says, look, I'm fed up with trusting the Lord's sovereignty. He's taking too long. I've got a plan. I've got a plan. It's a good one, Abraham. You're going to like it. You're going to like this a lot. I've got a plan. I'll sort out God's mistakes in my life. Now, just before we move on, just a, a little clarification. Is it... As if you're a Christian, is it good to plan? Yes. Yes. It is good to plan. That is a good thing. Numerous, numerous references throughout the Bible, particularly in the Proverbs. Let me give you one, Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. Make plans. Is it good to plans? Make plans. Yes. Is it good to make immoral plans that go against the Scriptures? No. No it is not. Is it good to make plans without consulting God? No. It's slightly more subtle. But hopefully the answer is obvious to you if you're a Christian. No. So there's a little pattern been set up here comparing Genesis twelve and Genesis sixteen. Genesis twelve from ten to twenty. Genesis twelve, there's a problem, famine. Abraham thinks I can't trust the Lord. So makes his own mind up. I'm going to Egypt without consulting the Lord. It ends in disaster. There's a problem. I can't trust the Lord. I won't ask him what to do. Disaster. Chapter 16, there's a problem in fertility. I can't trust the Lord. No consulting of what to do. Disaster. In the middle, you get a different example. Chapter 15, problem. I can't trust the Lord. But Abraham prays at that point. Lord, can you help? Do you remember last week? Can you help my unbelief? God answers. It goes well. So, here a pattern is given us in, gen- in, um, in this Abraham narrative. Got an issue? Consult the Lord. It'll turn out well. Failure to consult the Lord? Uh-uh-uh-uh. It'll go badly. Is it good to make plans? Yes. Good to make immoral plans? No. Good to make plans without consulting the Lord? No. You can't speak. You can't necessarily, you're not going to hear an audible answer when you ask him them a question, but do pray about it. One example, Proverbs 16. Uh, um, There's one example of it. Let me just read Proverbs 16, to 3. we got that. Proverbs 16. To man belong the plans of the heart, make plans. But from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. He'll, he'll, answer, he'll answer things his own way. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. So you can do something and think, oh, this is this is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to have Abraham sleep with this other woman. It'll produce a child. It'll help God. He seems to be struggling. Give me You've got a helping hand here. God knows your motives. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Now, be careful. That isn't, Lord, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket and I want you to give me the winning numbers. And you've promised it'll succeed. No, he's saying, if you commit to the Lord your plans... Things will go well. Your life will succeed. It's not a put the ten pence in here, get the sweet out there sort of approach. It's if you commit yourself to him, it will go well with you. Make plans? Yes. But trust him as you do so. The problem here then is Sarah's longings trumped her trust. I've got a plan. I'm not asking God. I don't care what he thinks. He might disagree with my plan. It's a good plan. If I pray about it and God says, no, that'll be very irritating. I've got a good plan. Someone says, are you sure? I'm not sure that's very biblical. Shh, don't tell me that. Don't want to know about that. Don't want to know about that. Don't want to know if the Bible's got anything. I've got a plan. And I, I just don't want anyone to contradict. Oh, that's a bad way of making decisions. Sarah's longings trumped her trust. That's not a great way to go. Trusting in the Lord is always the right thing to do. Secondly, Abraham. Next week he becomes Abraham and then we get, stop getting confused. Uh, Abraham, Abraham. secondly, he listened rather than led. He listened rather than led. End of verse 2. Looks very innocuous. Verse 2. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Now that looks entirely innocuous. What's wrong with agreeing with your wife? Lots. Con- context, <laughs> context, literally in the Hebrew, Abraham listens to the voice of Sarah. And then verse three, Sarah took, she gave to her husband. Now, if we've been reading through Genesis, we're meant to notice something here. So just a quick comparison between Genesis three and Genesis 16. So Genesis 16 two, Abraham listens to the voice of Sarah Sarah took, slave girl, gave to her husband, he slept with her. What about Genesis 3, Adam and Eve? God says to Adam, well, sorry, uh, Genesis 3, verse 6, Eve took the fruit, gave to her husband, he ate it. Same sequence of verbs. The Lord's verdict, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, they'll be cursing. Very striking. It's the only time you get this comparison. And it's not as obvious for us as we read it, but if you're reading the original, you're meant to think, "Uh uh-oh, I've seen this mistake before. The issue is not listening to that. The issue is Abraham should have led, just as Adam should have done. God had put Abraham there to give a spiritual lead to their marriage, to their relationship. Abraham had received promises from God. He should have known what to do. He should have led his wife in godliness. He should have said, well, that's an interesting scheme Um, you've come up with, Sarah. Let's commit it to the Lord and see what happens. Oh, no, hold on a minute. I seem to remember Genesis 2. One man, one woman. That's how we're meant to live. We're not meant to live just as the culture does around us. He fails. He fails to lead, as he should do. What a contrast. Abraham, who'd just been heroic in battle, Is hopeless in his family. So chapter 14, age 75, he'd saddled up, got his armor on, and ridden into battle with his men to save his nephew. Heroic on the battlefield, hopeless in the home. Passive. Whatever, 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 dear, whatever. Now men, can I say to the men, don't make that mistake. Don't be heroic in the office and hopeless in the home great triumphs and victories uh, in your field of work. But get home and just just tired and weary. And yeah, is that a good idea? Uh, I'm not sure it is. Okay, fine. It's Abraham's mistake. He, he listened rather than led. Now, no doubt he was disappointed as well. He'd had a promise for 10 years. It hadn't come true. You know, his name, we've said this before, but Abraham, the name he's got at the moment, means exalted father. Can you imagine when, you know, he's a, he's a nomad wandering around in the desert. Some people wander past, come in for tea, green tea or whatever they're drinking. And um, they come in and say, oh, hello, what's your name? afram Oh, okay. Doesn't that mean exalted father in your language? Yes, that's right. How many children have you got? None. Is that an irony thing? <laughs> I'm America. I don't get irony. Is that an irony? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Very, 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 very pathetic. Poor, poor, poor. The, um... Uh, what do I mean? No, that, that probably got him down after ten years. What's your name, Peter? Oh, it's not Oh, it's Abraham. Oh, really? Oh, okay, okay. No doubt, no doubt, he's a bit ground down by disappointment too. Okay, it's not a great scheme, but let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. Abraham is tired, probably but he listens when he should have led. What's the outcome? What happens? Verse four, he slept with Hagar and she conceived. Brilliant. Sarah's scheme has gone brilliantly well. Hurrah for self-reliance and down with trust in God, apart from verse four, the second half. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Ah, Hagar's status has changed now. No longer just the servant, no longer the slave that's owned. She's pregnant, which gives her great status in the society. And no doubt she was needling Sarah with this. Uh, Hagar, can you go and um, can you go and get the donkeys in from outside? Would well, you know what Sarah? I just, I'm a bit tired. Don't you know? Don't want to exhaust myself while I'm carrying Abraham's child. Can you get me a drink of water while I put my feet up, love? Could you? Could you? Oh, here comes Abraham now. Abraham, do you want to hit, do you want to feel the baby kick? Come rub my tummy. Do you want to, you can imagine how that goes. And Sarah gets pretty hacked off in that scenario. Starting to go a little less well. So here's, um, what does Sarah do? Sarah says to Abraham, verse five, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering really? Really? Is that really, Sarah? I mean, she does go on, of course. I, I put the, my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. Yes. Well, listen, if we are going to play the blame game, it was your idea. Yeah, but you did it. I know, but you told me to. Well, you know, you enjoyed it. Yeah, but the thing is, you were nagging me, so I just thought it was the only thing I had to do. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't go so well. Sarah goes on. May the Lord judge between you and me. Okay. When interested in the Lord's opinion now, I mean before, now it's all unraveling. You're going to invoke the name of the Lord, are you? Okay. Desperation calls. Better bring the Lord back. It's not going very well. So what does Abe do? Does Abraham step up to the plate and lead? Verse six. Well, your servant's in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Uh, Can I just point out, Sarah, your servant, not mine. You do whatever you want with her. Brilliant, Abraham. That's really taking charge of the scenario and sorting it out there. And what does Sarah do? Sarah ill-treated Hagar, and Hagar fled. Ill-treated? Same word as in chapter 15, verse 13. Same word as how the Egyptians treated the Israelites in the book of Exodus. In other words... Sarah beat Hagar physically. So Hagar flees. Now, by the time we get to uh, uh, this verse then, verse 6, how are we doing? Sarah's lost her maid. Hagar's lost her home. Abraham's lost his potential child. Brilliant. Now, who's to blame here? Well, Hagar was very silly provoking her mistress. But Sarah was very silly with her plan. And Abraham is very silly in not taking charge of the scenario. No one's looking very good at this point. Shall we have someone else on the scene? Yes, says the narrator. Third thing, the Lord cares for those cast out. Actually, let me say one more thing before we... We had Galatians 4 read. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament takes this narrative symbolically is you've got two women, Hagar, Sarah. They have children, Ishmael, and uh, we'll get there in chapter uh, 21, Isaac. One is trusting the promise of God. One is self-reliance. Those are two ways that you can live in this world. Two ways that people think, or there are two possible ways, I guess you could put it that way, that people think you can get to heaven. Most people think it's self-reliance. I'll do it. I can achieve. I will reach up to heaven. The way of faith, the way of eventually Sarah is, uh, I, um, Isaac, is not reaching up, but knowing that God reaches down. The difference is between thinking you can achieve a place in heaven by being good and recognizing you have to receive it by Jesus Christ dying for you. That's the principle that Paul identifies here that's going on in Abraham and Sarah. You can choose self-reliance. I will save myself. Or you can trust the promise of God. Jesus Christ has died for you. Now, that's not all going on here. But the same principle, self-reliance, trust in God, that's what's here. Third thing, though. Third thing. Sarah's longing is trumped to trust. Abraham listened rather than led. Thirdly, the Lord cares for those who are cast out. Briefly, uh, where's, Sarah, where's Hagar going? She's going to Egypt. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Shur's on the way to Egypt. Hagar's had enough. She's going home. She wants to see her relatives again. But on the way, she meets the angel of the Lord. Who is that? We don't know. Move on. Well, let me, you want a bit more than that. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is identified both as God, the Lord. So here in verse 10. The angel said, I will increase your descendants. That's a promise that God is making, so they're too numerous to count. So at points in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appears, he is the Lord. At other points, the Lord speaks to the angel of the Lord. So um some of us looked at recently 2 Samuel 24, verse 16, if you want to scribble it down. God stops the angel of the Lord from judging Israel or Zechariah 13 the Lord speaks to the angel of the Lord. So he's a slightly ambiguous figure in the Old Testament. Some want to say very clearly, it's Jesus Christ appearing before time. Well, maybe, maybe then it's the Father speaking to the Son. You might say that. The Bible never says that. So don't assert it too forcibly. But what is undoubtedly true is what you see in the angel of the Lord is a little foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ will be. God appearing to people. So he is the angel of the Lord, a picture for us of Jesus Christ. That's background. But what is he, more important is what does he do? Uh, What does he do? Verse eight, he speaks tenderly to Hagar. Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from or where are you going? He knows the answer to that. But he's engaging with her. He wants to speak to her. He wants to reason with her. I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Well, that seems a bit tough, doesn't it? Go back. But there are promises attached to it. The angel added, I'll so increase your descendants, they will be too numerous to count. Wow. Wow. Hagar, hey, go back. This situation is a mess. This whole scenario, this triangle, it's a sinful mess that you've created between you. Now, what do you do in a mess? You honor me and do what's best. And for your son, going back will be best. He'll have a dad. Abraham can look after him. He'll flourish in that setting. Take him back. Sin is messy. Sin has consequences. But what's the best thing to do? when your sin has caused you and produced a mess for you? Trust me. Repent and trust me. So go back. And there are promises here. So you can have wonderful descendants and the angel of the Lord said to her, you're now with child, you'll have a son, you'll name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He'll live in hostility towards all his brothers. So it's a mixed promise, let's be honest. You know, that's that's not the most flattering. You know, do you, you know, Do you know Chris Hanning? Yes. What's he like? He's a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) I mean, that's a slightly, you know, I'm not sure I'd enjoy that description. You know, it's a mixed blessing, let's be honest. And that'll unravel. We'll see when we come back to when these two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, and the two mums, they have another fight in chapter 21. We'll come back to that. It's a mixed blessing, but there is blessing here. The significant thing is this. What does Hagar do? Hagar thinks this is wonderful. Verse thirteen: She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, "You're the God who sees me." That's why the well was called Beer Lahairoi. Still there? Beer You can see uh, in your footnote. The living one who sees me. Hagar thinks this is wonderful. She's a slave on the run, on the road to Egypt. Have you been through that part of town? It's a lot of desert. She's in a miserable scenario. And she says, I've met the Lord. And you know what's wonderful? He sees me. He sees me. He's not given promises to me. I'm not one of his people. He sees me. I just encourage you, no matter... How much a mess you've made of your life to this point in time. No matter what you've done that you're ashamed of and haven't confessed, God knows and he sees you. He cares for those who are cast out. He knows and he sees. I was with another minister the other day. He told a lovely story. He was in New York for a few days. He had to use the same underground subway uh, station every day. He went down day one, and someone had graffitied massive spray paint letters, "I love Grills" above the um, above the platform, Grills, G R I L S, Grills. Strange. If you can do graffiti, you might as well spell it correctly. But didn't think much more about that. Next day, went down to the tube station. Someone had sprayed in a different colour paint underneath it, "I love girls." stupid. <laughs> he thought, yes, well, quite right. I mean, it's a little rude, but um, it's good to see that the, uh, the spelling is corrected. I like that. What a lovely city New York is. Um, <laughs> third day, he came back down, and the same sort of writing as day one had sprayed underneath. But who will love the grills? <laughs> <laughs> who will love... God loves the grills. (laughs) God loves those who are cast out. He loves those on the periphery. He sees. He sees and He cares for all. There's no one too small for Him to care about. No one has messed up their life too much for Him to care about. He's the God who sees. He sees you. He's the God who sees. Two things as we very briefly finish. Um, look, what a mess. Sarah's longings trumped her trust. That goes badly. It's a big fight. She loses the child that she thought she might have. God has to redeem the situation and bring back terrible. Abraham listened rather than led. He should have trusted the promise. God had given him a promise. He should have led his wife to tr- so that she trusted too. The Lord cares for those who are cast out. Two very practical things as we finish. Trust, the first is this. Trust the Lord as you repent of your mistakes. So it's a strange advice, so it seems to us, go back to the woman who's beat you. But the Lord is saying, in this messy scenario of sin, repent, trust me, deal with the consequences. Abraham and Sarah, they can't, they can't rub out this mistake they've made. They've got to live with it. And as we'll see working our way through this section of Genesis, it causes a huge amount of stink. This is not the last of this triangle that goes terribly wrong. It comes back to bite them again. But you know what? Sin has consequences. What do you do? You you honor the Lord in the mistakes you've made. So whatever they are, the abortions you've had in the past for some, the marriages that have failed and there are still children to look after for some. Life is messy sometimes. Repent, honor the Lord and seek to do what is right going forward. Don't try and erase the history. Don't try and shortcut faith. Start over. Decide today that you'll honor the Lord. So trust him as you repent of mistakes. And of course, the very last thing. Know that the Lord is the hero. The human characters in this story, it doesn't go well. The Lord is the hero. You can trust him. You can trust him. Don't try and shortcut faith by going around him. Don't say your sovereignty has failed and now I need to take it into my own hands. Don't say you've taken far too long and I need to do this my way. Trust him. It's really hard sometimes. The longings we have are very strong. Trust him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you record these extraordinary narratives narratives for us of uh, people who know you making a complete mess of their lives. Thank you for that they're written for our instruction. Pray that we'd avoid the mistakes that are made. We pray that we would look to you, the God who sees, and that we would trust you. Trust you when our longings are strong and intense and it's hard. That we would trust you. Knowing that in the end that is always the right thing to do. It is the way that honors you. It is the way that is best for us. Would we trust you, we pray. Amen.